we're balancing that fear of a very rare side effect against the reality that every day that this pandemic continues, a thousand people die in the United States. Every six months that we wait, 500,000 people die worldwide. And so we have to balance that reality against the fear of a very rare side effect. I will be first online to vaccinate, to protect myself, to protect uh, those around me, and to help contribute to herd immunity and end the pandemic. And I believe that the societal need is so great that it really overrides any concerns regarding long-term side effects or very rare side effects. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Recently, both Pfizer and Moderna announced that their vaccines, based on phase three trials, are 95% effective in preventing COVID-19. And while the work isn't done, they still await FDA approval, there finally appears to be a light at the end of the tunnel and hope on the horizon. Nevertheless, many people are nervous about the vaccines and suggested that they might not be interested in having it administered to them, at least not right away. There are concerns about the speed at which it was developed, the possibility of short and long-term side effects that might not have yet been discovered, and more. And these questions persist within the Orthodox community as much as anywhere else. And alongside these understandable concerns are conspiracy theories which claim that the vaccines are part of a malicious plot. And this too has sadly found a place among some Orthodox people. To discuss the vaccine both from a public health standpoint, as well as from the perspective of Jewish law, I interviewed Dr. Sharon Galper-Grossman. Dr. Grossman is a radiation oncologist and former faculty member of Harvard Medical School, where she also obtained a master's in public health. She's a graduate of the Morot LeHalacha program for women's advanced halacha learning at Matan HaSharon. She writes and lectures on women's health and halacha and teaches for Matan, Machon Pua, and the Aden Center, where she is the director of community health programming. Dr. Sharon Galper-Grossman, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Let's jump right in, because recently two companies, Pfizer and Moderna, released data indicating that their vaccines are about 95% effective in preventing COVID-19. And the data also suggests, as I understand it, that even those who do catch the disease are more likely to have a mild case rather than a serious case. So from your reading and your research of this particular topic, Do you find this convincing? Is this data that we can trust? So, yes, Scott, I find this data very convincing for several reasons. First of all, vaccine development in general for all vaccines has several safety nets to ensure ensure safety. First of all, trials go through three steps. And there's the phase one, where about 15 to 20 subjects are injected uh, with the vaccine, and they're being followed to test for safety. And then in phase two, about 20 subjects are involved, and they receive the vaccine, and they're being followed to test efficacy. And then in stage three, stage three typically involves three or 4,000 people who are randomly assigned either to receive the vaccine or placebo, uh, uh, just some sugar water. And the two groups are followed for an extended period of time and compared for rates of infection and uh, if they become infected, they're compared in terms of severity of infection and they're also compared for side effects. 
And at some point in the process that's predetermined, a data safety monitoring board, which is composed of independent scientists, independent of industry, independent of government, will unblind the data. And they'll look and see what happened to each group and figure out if there were more infections in the group that had the vaccine or in the group that had the placebo, were the infections more or less severe, and where were their side effects. And then one of several things will happen. Either they will decide that the vaccine is so ineffective uh, that they'll stop the study immediately, or they'll decide that the data is encouraging and it's worth continuing the study, or they'll decide that the data is so convincing it's time to apply to the FDA. And then the data gets sent to the, the company will apply to the FDA. At the FDA, another independent board of scientists reviews the data and they determine whether the vaccine should be approved. And after it's approved, Approved. The data then goes on to the CDC, where another board of independent scientists review it one more time to determine in whom the vaccine is indicated. And those are all the steps involved along the way to approving the typical vaccine. I should add that the independent board that oversees the data through the FDA and the independent board that oversees the data for the Center for Disease Control are all publicly broadcast and available to the public for other scientists to assess the academic rigor uh, and determine whether the data is, is legitimate. When the FDA approves the vaccine, all of this information becomes uploaded to the FDA website and available to all of us on the internet. So there's a lot of transparency in the process along the way. But in the COVID-19 vaccine, there are several other layers that have been added to ensure that there is no foul play and to ensure that the data that we see is, is in fact accurate and academically rigorous. So in addition to everything that I've just mentioned, at least one of the vaccines will use a platform to deliver the vaccine that already exists, that's already uh, been approved for use by the European FDA and already been used to deliver Ebola virus and tested in hundreds of 100,000 people. So we already have safety data on the vaccine platform for one virus. In addition, these trials, the COVID-19 vaccine trials, are enrolling up to 60,000 patients, which is 10 times the number of people enrolled in a typical vaccine trial. So there's an enormous wealth of data on the safety and efficacy of these vaccines. In addition, for the COVID trials, uh, there's a central data safety monitoring board to evaluate each trial. And the, the strength of that, the importance of that is that if we see a side effect with one trial, then the Data Safety Monitoring Board will know to look for it in another trial. Pfizer, however, ha will have its own independent board. And the importance of that is that the more scientists who review the data, the better. In addition, the FDA has required a two-month wait between uh, the last person vaccinated until the companies may apply for licensure. And that's important because we typically see side effects from vaccines after about six weeks. So it will allow time to see some of those side effects. In addition, for these trials, the pharmaceutical companies are behaving in an unprecedented way. They've demonstrated tremendous public disclosure and been really forthcoming with their trials. They've published their protocols for the vaccine. They have 
made public when they will subject the studies to interim analysis, what the criteria are. And they've actually come forward and told people, declared to the public when there were adverse events, that when Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca had adverse events, they disclosed this and, and they disclosed that they were halting their trials. And this level of public disclosure is really unprecedented. In addition, uh, many states in the United States have said that they will independently re-review the data after the FDA approves it to guarantee the authenticity of the data before offering it to their citizens. And so Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and, Immun and Infectious Disease, probably the senior scientist in the United States, has said between the data safety monitoring boards and the uh, independent review of, of scientists, there's no room here for hanky-panky. Dr. Dan Baruch of Harvard Medical School and one of the scientists involved in designing the Johnson & Johnson vaccine has said this is the most heavily scrutinized vaccine in the history of vaccines. And so why is that? Because there's tremendous interest and because the stakes are so high. In addition, I think that the reality that the fact that two trials, which are based on the same scientific mechanism, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, showed virtually identical results of 95% efficacy, suggests that, that these results are, are legitimate and that we should be confident in them. So you're speaking about efficacy, and all of that sounds amazing. It sounds like there has been so much scientific rigor here. There's little to worry about. But the one aspect which I haven't yet heard is when you mentioned before that typically side effects appear about six weeks after the vaccine is administered and that the FDA requires a two-month waiting period. The reason I ask about that is because a lot of people, and I've heard this over and over, have said, well, what if the side effects in this case are different? Every vaccine obviously isn't identical, and therefore the side effects might appear after three months or six months or a year. In fact, I was speaking to my daughter, my 14-year-old in the car the other day, and I asked her out of curiosity if she wanted to get the vaccine right away or whether she would rather wait. And she surprised me by saying that she'd rather wait because she doesn't know if there are long-term effects. How are the rest of us to know whether or not this vaccine is atypical and it requires a longer wait period, even though everything now is wonderful in terms of the results? We don't know what's going to happen in six months. You ask the burning question when it comes to the COVID-19 vaccine. And yes, your daughter is not alone. I can't tell you how many people have told me they're not going to be the first. They're going to wait. Uh, in fact, surveys across the, in the United States and Israel indicate that a huge percentage of the population will not be the first. In Israel, only 21% of Israelis said that they would get the vaccine once it is authorized. And 19% said they think about it. And the rest said either they won't get vaccinated or they'll wait. Your daughter is not alone. Uh, it's a very common uh, idea and a common reaction to the vaccine. But um, let's talk about what we know, what we will know about the COVID-19 vaccine when it is released. Please. So, First of all, what do we know about any vaccine when it's released, once the FDA approves it? So we won't, no, we never have long-term safety data because we have to follow people for many years to know about long-term safety data. And we will never know whether the vaccine causes very rare side effects. However, studies show uh, one study in particular looked at 1,000 vaccine studies, and that study which was a composite of a thousand studies, indicated 
that long-term complications from a vaccine are exceedingly rare on the order of one in a million. And so it is unlikely that uh, we will see long-term side effects from the COVID-19 vaccine. And if we do, they're on the order of side effects that we would see from vaccines that, that, that are routine, that, that we generally receive and that are mandated by governments and approved by our physicians. In addition, what will we know in terms of just the risk of short-term side effects? Because they've enrolled so many uh, volunteers, we will have the statistical ability to rule out a one in 1,000 risk of a side effect and perhaps even a one in 10,000 risk of a side effect. We won't have information regarding a one in 100,000 or one in a million side effect. And we won't have that information until millions of other people have vaccinated. And so why not wait four months? In fact, uh, there, a post-sake in Yerushalayim last week, a, a um, halachic decisor in uh, Jerusalem last week issued a statement that it is prohibited to vaccinate until we have data on billions of people who vaccinated. And we know that uh, the vaccine does not cause, we know without a shadow of a doubt that the vaccine does not cause any side effects at all. And so by those criteria, we will never vaccinate because- You can never vaccinate under those criteria, right, of course. Every treatment that we have in medicine and every medicine and every vaccine is associated with side effects, albeit rare, but it is associated with side effects. And so if it's prohibited to vaccinate, and we can talk about um, how Jewish law would approach these vaccines later, but if it's prohibited to vaccinate until we know without a shadow of a doubt that no one will ever develop a side effect, we're done. And there's no way, and we can't be vaccinated against anything. But what about waiting a few months, like your daughter suggested? So what's the downside to that? So we could wait. We could wait a few months, but just to think through the issues involved, we could wait a few months for the possibility of a rare side effect. But on the other hand, we're balancing that fear of a very rare side effect against the reality that every day that this pandemic continues, a thousand people die in the United States. Every six months that we wait, 500,000 people die worldwide. And so we have to balance that reality against the fear of a very rare side effect. In addition, by the time the vaccine comes to Israel and by the time it comes to your 14 year old daughter, it will have been given to millions of people and we will have even more data. In the first month alone, when healthcare workers in the United States are vaccinated, the people on the front lines and the elderly, millions of people will vaccinated. And then until it actually gets to Israel, even more. And then until it gets to the average risk Israeli, even more so. So by the time we have the option to decide whether or not to vaccinate or to delay, we will have many, many more months of data and well, hopefully not too many more months of data, but data from many more people. Dr. Grossman, from what you said in terms of thinking about the community at large and our responsibility, I'm not only thinking about myself increasing my immunity by 95%, but about the people around me, about my community, you're discussing herd immunity, it sounds like. Can you describe what actually herd immunity really is? Because I've heard so many people claim, oh yeah, my community has herd immunity and I don't necessarily believe them. Can you talk about that concept? So there's several reasons to vaccinate. One reason to vaccinate is to prevent myself from becoming infected. Another important reason is to prevent others from becoming infected. And a third reason is to contribute to herd immunity. 
And herd immunity is an epidemiological phenomenon by which if, if a certain percentage of the population develops immunity, the group that does not have immunity will not become infected or is unlikely to become infected. And in that way, the virus becomes extinct. And there are many different theories about how to achieve herd immunity. In Sweden, uh, Sweden proposed to achieve herd immunity through natural infection. And that approach has actually proven to be ineffective because eight plus months into the pandemic, their rate of immunity is only 7%. So they haven't reached herd immunity and they have a long way to go to reaching herd immunity. And the mortality rate is very, very high, one of the highest in the world. So hmm. we know that natural infection is not the way to achieve this. We know, though, scientists agree that vaccination is a key component, uh, an essential component to achieving herd immunity. Now, scientists disagree what the minimum threshold for achieving herd immunity is. Do we need 60% of the population to be immune? Do we need 80% of the population to be immune? They all agree, though, that there is no maximum level. The more people who, are, who have immunity, the better it is and the safer it is for all of us. And the idea that natural immunity can contribute to that, you're saying, is not really that true. And the reason I'm asking it is several months ago, someone I know who lives in a certain part of New York was seen on Facebook at some very large gathering with no masks and with no social distancing. And when asked about it, his response was, oh, my community has herd immunity. Is that absurd? So to achieve herd immunity, as I said, many of the communities have been tested. We have reported rates of herd immunity, but none of them would be high enough to achieve herd immunity. Someone mentioned to me a very good point, which is that now, as we understand it, when people do develop their own natural immunity in an individual after he gets antibodies having contracted the virus, generally, we're not sure how long it lasts, but it's assumed not to be that long term, whether it's three months, six months, a year. I've heard there are different studies trying to figure out how long a person's own antibodies can successfully prevent him from getting another case of COVID-19. Is there a reason to believe that with the new vaccine, the immunity will last longer? So some of the studies that are coming out are actually uh, suggesting that immunity from COVID-19 infection is much more longstanding than we originally thought. And that potentially people could people who have been infected may may remain immune for quite some time after infection even on the order of years we've all heard of cases of reinfection but the truth is that reinfection is quite rare a study from mexico showed that the rate of reinfection was on the order of 2 in 1000 people so 2 in 1000 people who were already infected so very very unusual uh, and so there's scientists, I think, are leaning more in the direction of natural infection actually may confer greater immunity than, than we originally thought or than we thought could be possible. The thinking, though, is that the vac that vaccines will confer even more durable immunity than natural infection. And again, one of the wild cards in the whole vaccine story is exactly how long vaccination will confer immunity. And so we just don't know. On the one hand, there's no reason to believe that immunity for three months, six months won't translate into immunity for a year. And if immunity from the vaccine only lasts a short time, then there's the option of re-vaccinating with boosters to re-strengthen the immune system. And so maybe it'll turn out to be like the flu shot where you have to go once a year for a vaccine or not. We just don't know. However, I don't think we can wait until we know and wait for a vaccine that confers five years of immunity before going ahead and going ahead with a vaccine. 
I know you've said this, and I wanted to just make sure it's very clear because to me it's the most important point of what you're saying. For our listeners, you would say when the vaccine becomes available for you and your children, vaccinate right away, do not wait. And the long-term side effects, short-term side effects, the chances are so small and our responsibility to our community is so large that there's nothing to talk about. It simply should be done. Is that a fair thing to say? Well, our children are a separate issue because the vaccine hasn't yet been approved in children. But in terms of in terms of us, I will be first online to vaccinate both to protect myself, to protect uh, those around me, and to help contribute to herd immunity and end the pandemic. And I believe that the societal need is so great that it really overrides any concerns regarding long-term side effects or very rare side effects. Now, how long after a vaccine becomes available, and obviously no one can really know, but how long would you estimate before life returns to some form of normal the way we knew it a year ago or more? So that's a really good question. Um, I, I saw a poll recently that a large percentage of the public believes as soon as a vaccine becomes available, the pandemic will end. And unfortunately, that's not the case. That's not the way it's going to probably going to work for COVID. It's not like when a war ends, please God, you turn on the computer and there's a headline, the war is over. It's just not going to be that dramatic and that black and white. And it's also not going to take the course that polio took. Polio, people became vaccinated and the case was closed. And what's likely to happen is that more and more people, as more and more people vaccinate, the number of outbreaks will decrease. The uh, intensity of the outbreaks will decrease. And slowly, slowly, the world will start to ease restrictions. And when, in fact, that happens is it depends a bit on us uh, and other factors that are also beyond our control. So it depends on us because if we mask, if we socially distance, if we go ahead and we take the vaccine, we will get there sooner. It would be an absolute tragedy for a vaccine to be available and the world to not take it. There are also factors beyond our control that will determine when this pandemic ends. And those include distribution of the vaccine, uh, disseminating the vaccine to 7 billion people and to many countries that are low income and don't and are resource poor. And there are also complicated, complicated issues regarding storing the vaccine. Pfizer's vaccine, for example, requires freezing in very, very, very uh, low temperatures. And how do you do that? Also, there, there are a lot of um, unknowns in terms of, as you already mentioned, the duration of immunity. Does the vaccine just prevent symptomatic infection or does it prevent asymptomatic transmission? If it prevents asymptomatic transition, then it's gonna be a lot more effective. And does it in fact protect those at highest risk? Even though Pfizer's latest press release, and again, this is not peer reviewed, indicates that it was 94% effective in those over age 65. And so when will it end? Scientists in America have said probably by the summer, things will look better, but we'll need to continue to mask and socially distance until 2021, even potentially even till 2022. And we do face this risk of vaccine complacency of people just saying, we're done. Uh, There's a vaccine. We can just go back to normal life. And so I, COVID I, is over. 
Right, COVID is over, which we heard, which we heard many people say last May. And so Dr. Fauci has, has some words of guidance to us that he gave last week after Pfizer and Moderna issued their press releases. And he said, help is on the way, but it's not here yet. To me, that's more of an incentive of, please don't give up, don't despair, the end is in sight. And mm-hmm. Tal Zaks, the chief medical officer of Moderna, who is an Israeli, had special, a special message for us in Israel that he gave the Jerusalem Post. And so he told his Israeli brothers and sisters, please be careful and stay safe for now. We still have a couple of winter months to get through this, and this is dangerous. Just be patient. I think there is a solution around the corner. And so, yes, there is a beacon of hope here, but we must continue to, to be vigilant, persevere, and mask and distance and take all of the steps that we can to minimize the risk of infection until the vaccine is here, until enough of us have vaccinated, until we reach herd immunity. You just mentioned until enough of us have vaccinated, which leads me to my next question. I want to know if you have any insights, and I don't don't think this is your field, but do you have any insights into the psychology of vaccine refusal? And I have to say, I know lots of people who make absolutely outlandish claims when it comes to vaccinations in general and COVID-19 in particular. It's an issue which frustrates me. I don't want to right now uh, get into my own personal psychology about this issue, but I think it's, it's crazy and I think it's very, very damaging. It's very, very difficult to understand how people can simply take scientific rigor and say that their Google search somehow tells them more than the kind of peer-reviewed discussions and research that you've described right now. How do you understand this? So I think there's several several reasons for COVID-19 vaccine refusal in particular. Uh, hard to go into the larger issue of vaccine refusal, but in the context of COVID-19, the COVID-19 vaccine, the reasons are that the vaccine was created at warp speed, uh, something your daughter has suggested, and a very real concern. Uh, on the other hand, the reason it succeeded at warp speed is that a reason corners have, haven't been cut here and scientists are uh, very confident in the academic rigor of the data is that billions of dollars have been invested and the studies have involved thousands and thousands of people and have built on existing technologies. And other reasons for concern here and for vaccine refusal and vaccine hesitancy, which is also a very popular term right now, vaccine hesitancy, is concerns about the lack of long-term data regarding side effects. There are conspiracy theories, fear of collusion between big pharma and um, the government and scientists, and just a general mistrust of science. It's just difficult for me to understand the psychology or the logic of those who would trust their own Google search or some random YouTube video over the findings of thousands upon thousands of scientists, somehow believing that a person has to do his or her own research and that would trump the views of the scientific community. It's just a very strange thing for me to really internalize. Well, just in response to that, Scott, the problem with this phenomenon is that once claims are made against a vaccine, the damage is out. And we saw that very, uh, very poignantly and very painfully with the measles vaccine in the 1990s. There are reports that emerged from England that the vaccine caused autism and parents were reluctant to vaccinate their children. And uh, eventually the data 
was disproven and it was withdrawn and rejected by the scientific community, but the damage was done until this day, people are reluctant to vaccinate their children against measles and we've suffered the consequences. We saw most recently a measles outbreak in Israel, in New York, and once the claims are there, it's very hard to restore public confidence. And that's certainly even more true in an era of social media where anyone can say anything and it has the same weight as anybody else who actually is an expert in the subject. I want to move into a different topic, though, because, Dr. Grossman, you're not only a physician, you're also a graduate of the Marot Lahalacha program at Matan HaSharon. And you recently co-authored an essay dealing with COVID-19 and the vaccine and halacha at traditiononline.org. So I want to ask a complex question with several parts, but its most basic point is this. How does Jewish law view a vaccine that is brand new without long-term safety data? And I guess the first question I'll ask about that is, how does Jewish law view dangerous therapy in general? So the Gemara in Avarazara 27b asks, in, under what context may a Jew visit a pagan doctor? And the fear of the pagan doctor was that he might kill the Jew. And the Gemara answers, if the Jew is going to die, he can go see the pagan doctor. The Gemara says, well, ask the question, how could that be? We know that the Judaism has places tremendous value on human life. How could it be permitted to go see a pagan doctor, even if you only have a little bit time left? He might kill you immediately. And the Gemara answers, we discount his remaining life uh, in the hope that the pagan doctor might heal him. And based on this, Jewish law allows someone who is ill to undergo dangerous medical treatment. Are there halachic precedents for receiving a dangerous vaccine, a vaccine per se? So the Gemara that I just talked about and the halachic decisions regarding uh, dangerous treatment all relate to someone who is otherwise ill. And the question, as you say, as you raised, Scott, is, is it permitted for a healthy person to receive a dangerous vaccine for a disease that he doesn't have and may never receive? And the answer is yes, there are halachic precedents. In the first half of the 19th century, Tiferet Yisrael, Rav Yisrael Lifshitz, on his commentary on the Mishnah, addressed the question of the smallpox vaccine, which had been introduced by Dr. Edward Jenner in 1796. And he ruled that it was permitted to receive the vaccine, even though the vaccine was associated with a one in 1,000 risk of death because the the dangers of smallpox infection were much greater than the dangers of the vaccine. And he cites as a proof the Beit Yosef, who brings the Gemara Yushalmi, which states that one is obligated to place himself in a possible danger to save someone else in a definite danger. Uh, so if you see someone drowning in the water or standing on the edge of the Kinneret, Yushalmi would obligate you to jump in to save him. And Tiferet Yisrael reasons that if one is obligated to save someone else from a possible danger, then most certainly it would be permitted for someone to receive a vaccine that's potentially dangerous to prevent a disease he does not have and may never receive. Based on this, all postgame virtually permit vaccination against routine uh, diseases. They permit routine immunizations. And many actually obligate vaccination. So how do we extrapolate from Tiferet Yisrael to the COVID-19 vaccine? So what are his criteria? The criteria is 
that the danger of infection is greater than the danger of the vaccine. And what can we say about the danger of COVID-19 infection and the danger of the vaccine? Well, the mortality from COVID-19 in the United States is something over 1%. In Israel, it's somewhat less than 1%. But that doesn't even capture the full danger of COVID. We know that there's long COVID with people who have chronic symptoms uh, for an extended period of time after infection, fatigue, loss of taste, smell, and some really severe uh, medical complications like breathing difficulties, uh, infection of the lining of the heart, infection of the heart muscle, heart attacks, strokes, and then, of course, there's, there's uh, the excess mortality from COVID, deaths due to people uh, delaying medical care for non-COVID diseases, uh, not doing their disease, their preventive medicine, hospitals that are overflowing with patients and can't take care of, people who have, uh, who have other medical problems. But even if we say that the risk of COVID is only 1%, the risk of COVID infection is far greater than the risk of the vaccine. And the risks of the vaccine are clearly less than one in 1,000. And so based on the Tiferet Israel's criteria, it would seem that the risks of infection are far greater than the risk of the vaccine. And that, that Judaism would permit the vaccine based on the, the Tiferet Israel's criteria permit or even obligate? Well, in terms of obligating, many of the halachic principles which obligate vaccination in general would obligate COVID-19 vaccination. For example, uh, some of the principles that obligate vaccination in general are public perception of danger. If the public perceives failure to vaccinate or delaying vaccination as a danger, then one is obligated to vaccinate. In the United States, where 58% of the population would take the vaccine when, as soon as it would come out, there is a public perception of danger, and that perception would obligate us to vaccinate. Other reasons to obligate vaccination in general, which would apply to COVID-19 vaccine, is the recommendation of legitimate government, the government to vaccinate. Uh, Israel has said, the Ministry of Health has said that it will obligate uh, all citizens to vaccinate. So that mandate would obligate us to vaccinate, give us a halakhic obligation to vaccinate. In addition, the recommendation of physicians and international medical organizations creates an obligation to vaccinate. And then, of course, the possibility of creating a chilul Hashem, uh, a, a desecration of God's name. But all of these halakhic opinions are speaking about normal situations when we're not in the midst of a pandemic. And when we're in the midst of a pandemic, the obligation is even greater. Uh, and this is and this is a position that Postgame have held that yes, in the midst of a pandemic, the rules change, and whatever we were obligated may have been obligated to do before, it's even more so now. So that question you mentioned about jumping in the Kinera to save somebody else, putting yourself in a potential danger to save somebody in a definite danger, leads to the question about altruism in general in Judaism. At what expense? to the rescuer, must a Jewish person put himself in danger? Obviously, if it's a full danger, if he doesn't know how to swim and he will drown, he does not have to jump in if he is definitely going to die. Where is that line drawn between altruism and I'm going to put myself in a serious danger by doing this? So first, the first question is, how do we know that there is even an obligation of altruism, that I'm obligated to save anyone when there's no risk? And the answer is the Gemara in Sanhedrin uh, 73a 
asked from where do we know that someone who is drowning, that when someone is drowning, we're obligated, one is obligated to jump in. And the answer is, do not stand idly by, uh, which according to the Sefer Achinuch applies for all people at all time and to men and women alike. Why? Because if I, you save me, I'll save you. And in this way, the world is saved. And so one of the most compelling reasons to vaccinate is to, is to save others from infection. But as you suggest, Scott, how do we know that that obligation persists even when there's danger to the rescuer? And this is a notion that Rav Avadji Yosef brings in a tshuva in a um, halachic opinion regarding kidney donation. And he quotes the Radbaz who describes three levels of risk to a rescuer. In the most extreme case, rescuing someone who's drowning places the rescuer in absolute danger. And it's absolutely certain if I jump into the Kinneret, I will die. In which case it's a sore, it's prohibited for me to jump in. In the intermediate situation, the Safek Shakul, there is a 50% chance that if I jump into the water to save the drowning person, I might die. In that case, I'm permitted to jump in, but I'm not obligated. And if I do, I perform the mitzvah of lo tamod al do not stand idly by. And in the third scenario, there's ktsat sefeik sakana. There's a small risk to the rescuer, in which case I am obligated to jump in. And so the question is, how do these different scenarios uh, apply to a COVID-19 vaccine? So in the most extreme case, if the vaccine was associated with a 90% risk of death or a 100% risk of death, then be absolutely prohibited. If the vaccine is associated with a suffix shakul, a 50% risk, then it would be permitted, but not obligated. But when we're talking about ktsat suffix sakana, a small possible risk, then I'm obligated to vaccinate. A small possible risk on the order of one in a million, one in a hundred thousand, even one in 10,000, or the one in a thousand of Tiferet Israel. So how would you say Jewish law would view vaccine refusal, and in particular with the COVID-19 vaccine? You sort of just said it, but I just want to lay it out exactly. So uh, halachic decisors use very harsh terms to describe, or some halachic decisors use very harsh terms to describe someone who refuses to vaccinate referring to them as negligent. Raval Yashif refers to someone who refuses vaccination as negligent. Several Israeli rabbis, Rav Carmel, uh, Rav Rabinovich, Rav Rose, Yisrael Rosen, Rav Moshe Aronreich, refer to someone who refuses vaccination as a rodef, a pursuer chasing after someone, the intention to kill. But they use even harsher terms to describe someone who refuses vaccination in the midst of a pandemic. The Ramah, Rav Moshe Israelis, says that when there is a uh, pandemic, one it must evacuate the city, one must escape, not at the end of the epidemic, at the beginning when the disease burden is low. And modern halachic decisors point out that today the contemporary equivalent of escaping is vaccinating. And so today, in the midst of a pandemic, we're obligated to vaccinate. And what's the halachic status based on that Rama of someone who refuses to evacuate in and escape in the in the midst of the pandemic? That person is defined as chayavim benafshotam. That that person is held accountable for his life. And so the contemporary equivalent of refusing to vaccinate, based on Ber Hetev, is chayavim benafshotam. You are you are held accountable for your life and the life of your family. 
Rav Mordechai Halperin of uh, the Falk Schlesinger Institute for Halacha and Medicine at Shari Tzedek, describes someone who refuses to vaccinate in a pandemic as a rotzeach begrama, a murderer. And the Aguda Israel in the United States has referred to someone who refuses to vaccinate in a pandemic also as a rodef, as a pursuer. And two years ago in Israel, leading Haredi rabbis, including Rav Yitzchak Zilberstein, in the midst of the measles epidemic, said that it was a halachic requirement to vaccinate and someone who refuses shofech damim, again, a murderer. So the harshest terms to define someone who refuses vaccination. Dr. Sharon Galbraith-Grossman, I learned a lot today, and I really appreciate you coming on the show, and I'm sure our listeners feel the exact same way. So thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me. Remember to go to jewishcoffeehouse.com for lots of great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chuchmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, Let My People Eat, and more. You can also find my blog, The Scott Conversation, there. Please also share this podcast so we can get the word out about the Orthodox conundrum to an even bigger audience. And please consider becoming a Jewish Coffeehouse patron by going to our Patreon page. The link is in the description of this podcast. For a small monthly donation, you decide how much or how little. You can get extra episodes, articles, merch, and more while also supporting our work. So please check it out today. I'm Scott Kahn, and this has been the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeehouse.com.